you're listening to part two of Fire with Fire, the second episode of Acoustic Nerve, a podcast about media and medicine. I'm Michael Nettleman. In part one, we chatted with Kate Long about the patterns that a lot of public health advertisements fall into. I think the public health recipe is tell people how big the problem is with numbers and then scare them into behaving better. And there's got to be a better way. And my search for that better way led me back to my home state. So I was born and raised in Miami, Florida, and Florida also happens to be the birthplace of one of the most successful public health campaigns in U.S. history. It's called the Truth Campaign. Truth is an anti-teen smoking campaign that started in the late 90s, when I myself was entering my teenage years. And I, I remember these ads very clearly. Um, but I was completely unaware of the really fascinating story behind them. Here's Tina Rosenberg. Uh, she's the journalist we heard clips from in part one of this episode. Teen smoking was astronomically high. Um, a survey showed that more than 36% of all high school seniors were smokers, and no one knew what to do about it. And while the reason for this is widely debated, perhaps the billions and billions of dollars that tobacco companies were increasingly spending on advertising might have had something to do with it. Public health experts had tried advertising to teens, giving them information about the dangers of smoking, tried scaring teens. None of that was, was effective. Teens aren't really known for caring about statistics, uh, but they are known for feeling completely invincible. Focus groups showed that teens overestimated the dangers of smoking. They thought it was even worse than it was. But that was part of the appeal for a teenager. And then, in 1997, everything changes. The tobacco industry has conceded defeat, and we have a settlement of historic proportions. The state of Florida brought a major lawsuit against the four largest tobacco companies in the United States, uh, including Philip Morris. It reflects the first time tobacco companies will be held financially accountable for the damage their product does to our nation's health. As part of the settlement, the state of Florida acquired two very important resources. They got not only a pot of money, but a trove of documents that were opening up showing what was really going on inside the tobacco industry. And then they decided to do something a little bit unconventional. And Florida, with that money, decided to hire an ad agency called Crispin Porter and Boguski, which had no experience with public health, but did know how to market to teenagers. Two months after being hired, uh, the ad firm held a youth summit with about 500 in attendance. These teens went out and, and conducted interviews at malls and skate parks, and they even helped drive the creative process. Crispin Porter and Boguski wanted to get to the core of why teens smoked. And the answer seems obvious, at least in retrospect. For teen, a cigarette is not a delivery system for nicotine. It's a delivery system for rebellion. It's a way of telling your peers, I'm so cool, I don't even listen to what adults tell me at all. It's a way of showing that you are anti-authority, that you are autonomous, and that older people don't tell you what to do. Well, this was clearly why past messages hadn't worked. So what Truth tried to do was 
was really break the mold that so many of these public health commercials had ingrained over the years. They didn't throw out statistics. Uh, they didn't try to scare teenagers or appeal to their health. They, they realized that if smoking was rebellious and cool, then it needed to become unrebellious and uncool. And in order to do that, Truth needed to take teenage angst and give it a new target. A lot of these ads used humor and pranks. What you're hearing is one of its most famous ads. It shows a bunch of people leaving body bags on the doorstep of Philip Morris headquarters. We're gonna leave this here for you so you can see what 1,200 people actually look like. In another ad, a girl shows up at their headquarters with a box labeled lie detector. Hi, Rita. I'm from Truth, and I just wanted to drop off a lie detector. She hung did up you, on did me. You run? Oh, I thought. Maybe it was the wrong Rita. Listen, have... I'm going to have to ask you to leave now. Okay. Okay. Of course, they get thrown out. Let's break down one of their more recent ads. What's going on here? What's up with this? It opens with a shot of a bright orange billboard. And on it are two gigantic black and white pages that look like they came fresh off a giant photocopier. And these pages were presumably among the documents that were released as a result of that big legal settlement. The one on the left are just some of the ways big tobacco labeled African Americans. Less educated, preferred malt liquor, problems with self-esteem. I mean, wow, that's... Yep. Really? And then there's the page on the right that reads... Project Scum, Subculture Urban Marketing. It's a plan to sell cigarettes to gays and homeless people. They literally have the nerve to label something Project Scum. You're joking, right? No joke, for real. It's a really smart ad. I mean, the aesthetic alone has this sense of, like, guerrilla activism. And there's a, there's a sort of roughness to the handheld camera work and the photocopied billboard. It looks like it's just been thrown together at the last second. But looking at the bigger picture, truth ads like this one largely ignored the health risks of smoking in favor of changing the way we think about tobacco companies and thus changing the way we perceive the act of smoking. Suddenly, all of these smoking teenagers no longer felt like individuals. They were playing right into the hands of the tobacco companies. And just like that, smoking became uncool. One of the ideas that stuck with me as I was doing the research for this piece came from an epidemiologist and science writer by the name of Dr. Atif Kukuswadia. And he discusses this distinction between communicating a risk and marketing a message. So in other words, he's basically saying that we in public health really need to think like an advertiser and sell a product. So how do you do this? How do you sell a product when your message is don't smoke? Crispin Porter and Boguski were drawing their inspiration not from other public health ads, but from Nintendo, Mountain Dew, uh, from Skechers. They didn't just produce TV spots. I mean, they had a magazine, they had a truck that went to beaches and raves. Uh, they sold merchandise on a 10-city public relations tour. In making truth a vendable product, in creating a brand, the ad agency gave teens a new group to belong to. People are most likely to change when they're given a new identity. So that's what they were selling. A new identity. Mm -hmm. 
So meanwhile, Philip Morris is doing all of this research, and they know that Truth is getting the upper hand. So as damage control, they end up crafting their own response to the Truth ads. This comes in the form of their own anti-smoking campaign called Think, Don't Smoke. You know, they wanted to rebrand their corporate image as more responsible and likable than those other tobacco companies. Hey you! Me? Yeah! Did you ever try cigarettes? So this scene is where we're outside of a school and this kid walks out and a cameraman, uh, who we never see, kind of accosts him with all of these questions about his smoking habits. Did you ever try cigarettes? I was 14. Any reason? I guess I was trying to be cool or something. Really? So you tried it because other people were doing it? Yeah, I guess. And he looks completely pissed off. Uh, he responds in these very terse half sentences and just, you know, does not look like he wants to be there. And why don't you do it anymore? A lot of reasons. Just didn't like it, you know? I don't need to smoke to, like, fit in. Hold up. And then before the ad fades to black, he asks very curtly, We finished? He's telling us this ad is a waste of his time. Now, this isn't an attack ad in the same way that Truth is, but it masquerades as a Truth ad. And if you weren't paying attention, you might not know the difference. It has the same man-on-the-street aesthetic. It has the same baseline message of don't smoke. But there's a conflict between the teenager and the cameraman. And because we never see the cameraman or establish him as a peer, we don't really trust him. We're subtly being told that even if this kid doesn't need smoking to fit in, it is a way that some kids fit in. We're being told that a teen can try it for himself and see whether or not he likes it. And most of all, we're being told that ads like Truth are intrusive and uncool. And if you're thinking that a tobacco company creating these anti-tobacco ads seems kind of counterintuitive, then you haven't been paying attention. Until a few years ago, Truth was the only anti-smoking campaign not directly funded by the tobacco industry. I mean, all of the other anti-smoking ads were coming from Big Tobacco, which is ridiculous if you think about it. Philip Morris was smart, and research showed that their anti-smoking ads were found to paradoxically increase teen smoking. The implied message in many of these industry-funded TV ads uh, has always been, don't smoke uh, until you're old enough. That alone is enough to make teens want it even more. We're almost to the end of part two of this episode, so let's take a moment and look back for a second. And how much closer are we to unlocking the secret of the perfect public health ad? On one hand, we spent a lot of time in part one kind of shaking our heads at the scare tactics that a lot of public health ads use. But his internal organs carried on traveling until they hit his ribcage and his lungs were punctured and the main artery from his heart was torn. And that's what killed Richard. But can we say definitively that fear is always less effective than, you know, creating a new identity or selling a product? At this point, there's probably a trend, but I'm not ready to put all my eggs in one basket. Going back to Kate Long, whom we also heard from in part one of this episode, you know, she brought up an interesting point that I'd like to leave you with. If fear is less effective in getting your message across, then how would we explain something like Ebola? 
Why do people set into a panic over Ebola? And yet we struggle to get them even a little bit excited about the things that are much more likely to kill them, like smoking. Like we only have so much capital for that, that, that so much energy um, as a society to invest in being afraid and freaked out about these kinds of things. And we used a lot of chips, so to speak, on Ebola. What can we learn from Ebola? In part three, we'll talk about this and more, and we'll finally sit down with Urvashi Guha, senior vice president at one of the largest advertising agencies in India, to discuss trust, culture, and how advertising professionals determine what does work and what doesn't. Again, all of what you're hearing is made possible by Stanford Center for Innovation in Global Health. And thanks also to Global Health Now at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which featured in today's issue the article on which this podcast is based. You can check them out at globalhealthnow.org, and you can also read the full article, Fire with Fire, on cinemedical.com. That's C-I-N-E medical.com. music by Chad Crouch, Kevin MacLeod, and Elvis Crespo. 